Heads up, horror fans. Say no to drugs and stay out of the basement. You're listening. We interrupt our program to bring you Final Girl Friday. Welcome to Final Girl Friday. I am Molly, and I love scary movies. So I come here to process my feelings about them. It is indeed Friday night. I have a toasted marshmallow mocha in my hand, which is appropriate for the 30-degree weather we have happening in Omaha right now. And I just got home from watching Dr. Sleep. Eat well, live long. Holy shit, this movie is good. So I'm not going to be giving like a full review with spoilers tonight. This is more first impressions, completely spoiler-free. And I I wasn't sure exactly how excited I wanted to be about the film when I talked about it tonight, because I, I don't want to contribute in any way to any disappointment that someone might have with the film if they go into it with outrageously high expectations. Because no matter how wonderful a film may be, that's a recipe for disappointment. But I mean, after a long debate with myself on the way home, there's no way I'm going to be able to stay calm while while talking about this movie because it it just, it blew my brain out of the back of my skull to the point where it's one of those rare films where when it was over, I what I really wanted to do was just march right back down to the box office and go right back in for the 645. I wanted to watch it again immediately. So I went to see this movie with my friend Jason, who is an avid fan of Kubrick, which I mean, you know, aren't we all? Um, and he was not very familiar with Mike Flanagan. He wasn't very familiar with the story at all. He hadn't been keeping up with news. So he went in part blind and with very low, if any, expectations. And also Jason is notoriously hard to please um, when it comes to things like films. But when it was over, he turned to me and the first thing he said was, I think that's the best movie I've seen all year. I think I liked it even more than Joker, which coming from Jason is, I mean, Joker was like the piece de resistance of 2019 for him. So to hear him actually place Dr. Sleep above it, that was a compliment in and of itself. But then he followed up by saying, I think that's the closest thing to a Stanley Kubrick film that wasn't made by Stanley Kubrick. I think that that is such an accurate thing to say. I felt that this film was a near perfect marriage between the uh, Kubrickian style and Mike Flanagan's style, which, oh God, Mike Flanagan, can we just talk about Mike Flanagan for a second? Because this fucking guy, I mentioned last week, uh, one of the podcasts that I've been listening to a lot lately is uh, We Watched a Movie. And uh, Mike from We Watched a Movie posted his sort of first impressions of the film on their Patreon. And in that post, he sort of instructed the world to put Mike Flanagan on everything like sriracha. And I just, I, I just died when I read that because that's exactly how I feel. Like Mike Flanagan has become progressively more and more one of my absolute favorite filmmakers of the last decade or so. God, when it comes to horror films, just hush was spectacular. Gerald's Game, which was to me, I was just talking about this on Halloween. Uh, it's one of the few horror films that I still can't actually sit through a second time. It was too disturbing for me. I'm, I mean, a lot of it too was the source material. I think Mike Flanagan and Stephen King together just have, they have that magic. But, um, and then you have the beautifully done Haunting of Hill House. And now, he has outdone himself with Dr. Sleep, in my opinion. He has just outdone himself. And it isn't just him, you know, because with Mike Flanagan comes the extraordinary cast, 
the phenomenal crew. You know, have you ever gone to like a party where everything seems to be great, everybody's having a really good time, and you don't even realize necessarily just how important the presence of one person really is until that person leaves. And then as soon as they leave, everyone goes with them. That's Mike Flanagan. He takes the party with him wherever he goes. There were several familiar faces in this one. There were familiar crew members in this one. Most notably for me would be Michael Fimignari, who I, I, I think I mispronounce his name like every time I say it, but he, he was a cinematographer for Dr. Sleep as well as The Haunting of Hill House. And my God, he did a wonderful job. I mean, I, I don't want to go into too much detail in terms of like scene for scene. I want to do that tomorrow. But um, Fimignari so masterfully recreated some of the most iconic and beautiful shots from The Shining, while at the same time creating uh, like a cornucopia of his own beautiful shots. And I mean, in tandem with Mike Flanagan, who has just such vision, I mean, it was, it it came, it was, it's a beautiful movie. <laughs> I knew that I wasn't going to be able to review this film calmly. I apologize. I think also, you know, one of the smartest choices they made, and they did make quite a few smart choices in this film, but one of the smartest that they made was recasting uh, the characters from The Shining rather than recycling footage from the original film or trying to de-age the characters. I'm so glad they didn't go with either of those options. I think that recasting was the best thing they could have done because it felt so much more organic. It felt so much more watchable and immersive. It didn't take me out of it at all, especially because it's so easy to accept. These are how these characters look uh, in Danny's memory, you know? This is how Danny remembers his mother and how Danny remembers his father, not necessarily how we remember them. And I think that that was, that was brilliantly played upon. You also have first-time art director Richie Bearden, who worked um, as part of the special effects team for the new Creepshow series, as well as the art department for Stranger Things. To my knowledge, this was actually his first art direction credit. I kept thinking on, on the way home when I was sort of rehashing the film and trying to organize my thoughts about it, I kept thinking about a line from Lawrence Dunmore's The Libertine, where John Wilmot says, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but he says, every action in the theater has consequences. Drop a handkerchief and it will return to smother you. And uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons why that line kept popping into my head is because given that this, that Dr. Sleep is a direct sequel to The Shining and, and the, the consensus about The Shining being that Kubrick did next to nothing on accident, that everything was deliberately done, the the disorienting layout of the hotel, everything down to like the the magazine that Jack Torrance was reading in the lobby waiting, everything was was deliberate, is sort of the general belief. And as such, I think that is what gives The Shining just an endless amount of depth for its viewers that has outlived and will continue to outlive Kubrick, you know, just for, I would imagine, just generations upon generations to come. Like, it's incredible. And there is definitely a lot of that or what feels like a lot of that in Dr. Sleep. I don't know how much of what happens in Dr. Sleep was, you know, pre-planned, but everything in it feels deliberate. Obviously, it's not just a sequel to the film. Dr. Sleep feels like it is both a sequel to the Stanley Kubrick version of The Shining and a sequel to Stephen King's version of The Shining, which as I think most of us by now know, Stephen King was not a fan of Kubrick's version of The Shining. He much preferred the miniseries that was released years later. Um, and so I thought that this was a pretty bold move on Flanagan's part 
to, to wed the two together, which is exactly what he's done. It was a fragile project. It was a delicate thing. One misstep could have killed this entire movie. So I feel like a lot of things kind of came together. And in addition to the crew, you also have a spectacular cast. You have Ewan McGregor, who, when I first heard about Dr. Sleep, the first thing I heard about it was that Ewan McGregor would be playing uh, Dan Torrance. And I would have I would have gone to see it just for Ewan. And his performance was even better than I than I, I knew it would be. I think uh, William Bibiani of Bloody Disgusting said it way better than I ever could. He said, Ewan McGregor owns his vulnerability and turns it into shaky strength. I think that is such an accurate description of his performance in this film. And it works so beautifully. We all know Danny Torrance as a vulnerable, curious, and traumatized boy. And I can't imagine a more believable performance in that vein being delivered by anyone. I think Ewan McGregor was the absolute perfect choice. And then you also have Rebecca Ferguson, who I think it is so great. The timing was really great on this that I, I got to go see Dr. Sleep on the same night that I'm going to be talking about uh, female villains in horror films because Rebecca Ferguson, Rose the Hat, is a wonderful villain. I mean, Ferguson gave such a, a great performance in this. She was able to just so artfully toe the line between complexity and cruelty in a way that makes Rose the Hat, I think, one of the more memorable female villains that I've seen in, in recent years. You had Kylie Curran, who I believe this was her film debut. She plays Abra, the young girl that Dan Danny befriends. Even more so than Danny Torrance, I feel that Kylie Curran is in many ways the lead in this film. She did a wonderful job. She was remarkable. And then, of course, you have Henry Thomas, who has now appeared in no less than four of Mike Flanagan's films, which I just am so happy about because I, I really like Henry Thomas. I always felt that he was a bit of an underused actor. So I'm glad that Mike Flanagan, of all people, appreciates him and continues to put him in his movies. Uh, you have Karel Stroykin, who uh, most people, I think, know as Lurch from the Addams Family movies. He plays Grandpa Flick, which I thought was uh, one of the more memorable characters, although a lot of them are very memorable. But really, anytime Karel Stroykin is on screen, I think it's really hard to pay attention to like almost anyone else. He's such a, he fills a room. Also, um, on a personal note, it was really cool for me to get to see Cliff Curtis, who plays Billy, who kind of becomes Danny's best friend throughout the course of the film. Cliff Curtis, I first saw him in Once Were Warriors. Uh, he plays Uncle Bully, who was such a scumbag in that film, which is a, it's a wonderful film. Um, his character is just vehemently dislikable, and with good reason. I mean, you're supposed to dislike him, but that was actually the only thing. That's the only thing I remember seeing that actor in. And so it was really cool to get to see him again so many years later and to get to see him play, uh, you know, such a, just like the polar opposite of that character in this. It was weird also to hear him talking in uh, an American accent, although the accents in this film, I felt that for the most part, they, they were great. Cliff Curtis and Bruce Greenwood, both of them in particular, they were laying it on thick with like the New England accents in, I, and that's a hard accent to pull off. Anyway, I'm getting off track, but I just, there were just so many little details in this film. Another standout casting choice and performance, in my opinion, uh, was that of Carl Lumley. I think I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but he played Dick Halloran in this in this version of the film. And all the recasts were just great. But I think the recast of, of Dick Halloran is the one that really kind of stuck out to me the most. He tugged at all of the right heartstrings for me. You just have all the pieces that fit together to make this several films at once. Whether or not it was a terrifying film, um, it wasn't the kind of horror movie 
movie that when I leave the theater, you know, when I have that long walk home in the dark, I'm like jumping at every noise because it just set me on edge. It wasn't that kind of frightening. Um, and I don't even know that I would say it was frightening really at all. There were some eerie moments some you know heebie-jeebie type moments, uh, particularly with uh, the appearances of the old woman in the bathtub. You know, she appears multiple times in the film. And those, those were eerily done, very reminiscent of things like The Haunting of Hill House. Um, but we knew, I think, a lot of what was coming. Like every time the camera cut to the bathtub, you knew there would be a hand reaching around to draw back the curtain. You knew exactly who would be sitting in that bathtub. So it didn't have that same sort of anticipatory fright that the original Shining did. Although I will say there there was a moment when young Danny, uh, toward the beginning of the film, when they're doing one of the flashback scenes at the Overlook, they have the, the, the recast young Danny on his tricycle. They maintained a lot of like the like similar sound design as well for that part, which was which was really great. And he stops outside of 237 and the door slowly opens and we actually kind of get to see you know, the thing we didn't see happen in the original Shining, they sort of, you know, this is Danny's memory of that moment. And that was a pretty eerie moment for me. As far as, you know, anything that I may not have enjoyed about it, that's also something I think I'll have to reserve for my more in-depth review because most of the things that I wasn't super crazy about in this film were all in the third act. But I mean, the complaints are so minor. All in all, it really it really was a just a wonderful film. I cannot wait to see it again. There's so much more that I can and absolutely will say about this film. But for now, I really highly urge anyone and everyone who might be listening to this to, you know, take a couple hours out of your day, go see this film because it is definitely thus far Mike Flanagan's best work, in my personal opinion. And if you're going to continue this story for any reason at any time, this, in my opinion, is the way to do it. I didn't really take any notes or anything, you know, during or after the film, except I did I did jot down a couple of quick things. I want to see if I forgot anything before I move on. Um, oh, the model city. There was a model city. At one point in the film, uh, Danny ends up kind of admiring this sort of small mid-sized model of the small town that he is in. They drew a lot of really moving parallels between Danny and his father throughout the film in several different ways. And most of them were, you know, again, it goes back to um, what William from Bloody Disgusting said about Ewan McGregor's vulnerability. You know, you have this character, you have the character of Danny Torrance, who we all know and love. And this is him grown up dealing with very real, very hard, fucked up issues. And really, I mean, he's just sort of trying to bed down so much of what happened to him. But then at the same time, he's a human being who had a father who, abusive or not, was a part of his life for the first five years that helped contribute to him being alive and that died under such just horrific circumstances. And he never really got to know him as an adult. So Danny Torrance trying to make peace with who his father was and with the parts of himself that are, you know, reflective of his father and also trying to figure out exactly who he is, you know, in the wake of his sobriety. There's just so much going on with the character of Danny Torrance. And a, so much of it relates directly back to his father in a way that is very, it's very emotionally effective. I think that's probably... All I'm going to say about it, I know that was a very long first impression review, but I mean, I just am, I'm so happy that I saw this tonight. I can't wait to see it again. And um, if anybody out there listening to this goes out and sees it, please join the Discord and come and talk to me about it because I would love to know what you thought of the film. Uh, and if you're not a member of the Discord, then stay tuned until the end of the episode for information on how you can become a member of the Discord. <laughs> 
Eat well, live long. It's such a, oh, it's just so good. So tonight I will be talking about female villains and killers in horror and thriller films. I'm sure it goes without saying, but chances are I will be spoiling quite a few movies. So if you uh, have not seen any of the films that I mentioned throughout this podcast, you might want to proceed with caution. This is my first patron-picked topic. I am very excited about it. Thank you guys so much for voting on the patron topic poll and for choosing this, which will hopefully be a fun topic and an interesting one for me to explore. Um, However, I will admit that I am a little bit nervous to explore it as well, simply because, as I've stated previously, I'm not like a professional of this industry. I'm not a film critic. I was not a film studies major in college, nor was I a women's studies major in college. I am just a fan of horror films who appropriately, for this topic at least, happens to also be a woman. So my insight kind of begins and ends there. Um, I know that this is a sensitive topic for a lot of people. Uh, It can get very political very quickly. And I will try to kind of keep my uh, brain from meandering in that direction for too terribly long. I don't really know how to talk about women in horror films without straying into that territory a little bit, however, uh, primarily because of one argument that I used to hear often. I really don't hear it that often anymore, which is such a relief. I feel like we are and have been for a little while now moving into a thrilling era, one might say, for women in well, film in general, but but horror in particular, at least for me, because that's the genre I watch the most often, so that's the one I'm most aware of. Um, but for a very long time, and I, and I know that it does still happen, horror films in particular were frequently accused of promoting very hurtful messages for women, and that that was basically all they did. I have read so many articles over the years, which again, like I said, it's a relief to see people's attitudes toward the genre changing. And I think that's also because the genre itself has been changing for a long time. But a lot of articles like in the 70s, 80s, 80s in particular, and then the 90s, you had articles that were examining, you know, gender in film and tearing horror films apart for being just awful to women, which having grown up in the 80s and 90s, and having been a fan of horror my entire life, I didn't really become a fanatic of the genre until I was in like my late teens, early 20s. But I was a big fan of horror as a kid. And really, the the biggest reason that I was a fan of the genre as a kid was because of the heroic female characters that I saw left and right when watching horror films. When I was a little girl, I idolized Laurie Strode and Nancy Thompson, and Ellen Ripley, um, and then a little bit later, Sidney Prescott, uh, and even Gail Weathers at times. These women, to a girl between the ages of 9 and 13, these were my superheroes, the final girls of the horror films that I watched. And that sentiment only grew stronger the older that I got. And I realized just how many heroines existed in the genre of horror. 
I mean, yes, it's definitely true that particularly within the slasher genre um, and even more specifically within slasher films made, I would say, prior to the mid-90s, there was a lot of hypersexualization of women as a standard. There was a lot of victimization of women as a standard. However, even back then, I would argue that the majority of the heroes in slasher films were still women. One of my personal favorite examples is the film Terror Train from 1980, in which um, Elena, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, she is a member of a social circle in medical school. Uh, they pull a prank on uh, a fellow medical student who's a little socially awkward, you know, not entirely dissimilar to Slaughter High, the B-movie of the month. Uh, but they pull a prank on him that goes just way too far, and it traumatizes him. He's institutionalized. Fast forward in time a couple of years, Elena and all of her friends are about to graduate from medical school, and they are celebrating their last New Year's Eve before graduation with a big party on a moving train. Kenny, the victim of the prank from years earlier is loose on the train and he is killing off everyone who is involved in the prank, which ultimately, you know, ends with Elena. She was at, sort of at the center of the prank, although she was the least comfortable with it and she was the one who never forgave anyone else in the group really, but particularly the guys who orchestrated the prank. She never forgave them for that. And then, you know, there's a fantastic fight scene on the train between Elena and Kenny and Elena ultimately survives. So there you go. There's a crash course in Terror Train. Um, but what I love about that film in particular is the character of Elena, she's very headstrong, very intelligent, very independent, and she's not virginal or innocent in the way that we often see uh, final girls depicted in slasher films. She's involved with someone, uh, a man that she obviously has a sexual relationship with. She seems relatively comfortable with herself and who she is, um, and she is a decent person as evidenced by the regret that she feels, the guilt she feels over what the group did and her role in that. And she takes responsibility for it. Yes, she blames the people who orchestrated it. She's angry with them. But you can tell that she also takes responsibility for it herself. And this becomes even more evident when she is, you know, comes face to face with Kenny. She's dressed up as a pirate through the whole thing. She's not. There are a lot of uh, male and female characters around her that are very hypersexualized, which which I think is also often the case with any slasher film. Everyone in it is hypersexualized, not just the female characters. Uh, in, in fact, if any group of any kind should feel marginalized or stereotyped uh, by slasher films, it should just be teenagers in general. Because <laughs> whether you're male or female, um, your entire existence is about sex and drugs and making bad choices. Ultimately, Elena is alone. And she faces off against Kenny, who is terrifying and determined. And she defeats him through her resourcefulness. She outwits him. She's also able to physically withstand and endure everything that he puts her through. She survives everything. She survives it all. And she does it on her own. I have also heard arguments against that. I've heard that forcing all of these other characters around the final girl or the final boy in some cases to die in order for them to step up and accept their role, that there's something inherently wrong with that. But I mean, isolation, as, as we talked about a lot on Halloween, isolation Isolation is a huge part of, I mean, it's like one of the single most common elements of any good horror film. You know, you take a single character and you isolate them. I think we are a tribal species by nature, and one of the scariest things for us is to be alone. So when I was a kid, I saw Terror Train on television, and I remember thinking, 
that Elena Maxwell was one of the single most badass heroic characters I had ever seen. And I do distinctly remember believing that Jamie Lee Curtis specifically, you know, having seen her as Elena, having seen her as Laurie Strode, having seen her in Prom Night, I just basically decided that she was, in fact, a superhero. Jamie Lee Curtis was my Wonder Woman. So to hear anyone accuse horror films of hurting women, that that's hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to ac- accept on that level, having grown up in that world. And also, you know, having the unique experience of being a teenager at the time that Scream came out. And Scream, that marked a very unique time for slasher films in particular, because Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson very willfully turned a lot of stereotypes from the slasher genre on their head. And they created in Sydney um, a deliberate inspiration for young women. And they, they set a, a whole new tone within the slasher genre. Uh, that has, I don't think, ever gone away. I think we've really only built from there. The point that I'm making, I realize I'm not talking about um, female villains in horror yet, um, but I don't know how to talk about women in horror without talking about the heroism present throughout. Now, that being said, when it comes to the other side of horror, of these, you know, these darker stories, the darker side of women, one might say, women as villains or killers in horror films seem to be much less frequently delivered to us within the genre. We see far fewer female killers, female villains. As a female fan of films, I want to see more Annie Wilkes in the world. I want to see more Debbie Salt and uh, Marie from High Tension. And we are seeing them much more. But what I what I want to address, I was reading a, an article from Bustle Magazine a couple of days ago that was talking about, it was just a list of what they called like the 19 most terrifying female villains in horror movies. And uh, the way that the article was written, and this is not the only one that's been written this way, is they take characters like Rose and Missy Armitage from Get Out, for example, or Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction, uh, even Regan from The Exorcist, which I've seen on a couple of lists of this nature. And they frame these characters as though they they themselves, the characters, are empowering for women. That's what bothers me. Yes, I want to see more villains, more killers, you know, more female-driven crazy in cinema. I want to see the Vera Farmigas and the Allie Larders and the Mary Elizabeth Winsteads of the world. I want to see them unleash, you know, and just get to go nuts with phenomenal roles that challenge them at every turn. But I don't think of characters like... Rose Armitage, the character, she's not a woman, nor is Missy Armitage. Neither of these characters are women to aspire to. You know, Reagan from The Exorcist, first of all, it's not even actually Reagan, guys. Reagan from The Exorcist does not belong on a list of empowering female villains in horror movies. She just, she just doesn't belong on them. The villain is a demon that has possessed her. That's what, that's what kind of bugs me when I get into this topic, because I feel like there is a lot of gray area where villainous women in horror films are being exalted and treated like badasses, when in reality, they are indiscriminately, you know, psychopathically murdering people, or, you know, they're seeking out people to butcher. These are villainous characters. We are not supposed to want to be them. Obviously, film is subjective. So if you if you really want to be Rose Armitage, I can't stop you. But dude, don't. So anyway, that's where I start to kind of feel like we're, we're straying from the point. It doesn't mean that I don't immensely enjoy, you know, great 
villainous female performances because I I absolutely do. Um, and that's what I really want to talk about today. I just wanted to kind of cover some of that before I dove into it. And I want to keep having the conversation about women in film. I just want to make sure that for the record, I am on record as saying that I personally have always felt deeply and profoundly affected and empowered as a woman by the female heroines in the horror films that I have grown up loving. And I have always felt deeply empowered by the performances, the female actors that have played some of those memorable villains within this genre as well. Over the course of the last week, week and a half or so, I have posted the question on uh, social media platforms, and I've uh, kind of flagged people down at work, and I accosted a couple of people at the movie theater today, and I've been asking anyone and everyone that I can, who do you feel is the scariest or most memorable female villain or killer in a horror or thriller film? It's been really interesting this week asking this question because online I have gotten just a multitude of, of really great and uh, diverse answers. But in person, I tried to ask anyone and everyone that I could and most people, most of them could not think of a female killer in a horror movie right away. Almost all of them needed a lot of time to think it over. And I don't just mean like five seconds. I mean a lot of time. And I found that in and of itself interesting. But the thing that I thought was even more fascinating was that once they did think of a female killer that really stood out to them, most of the answers were different but similar. So I thought that this was just like super fascinating. I think it's important uh, to mention that I didn't actually set out to include uh, the genders of the people giving me answers in this experiment. It was just sort of one of those things that I thought was interesting once it happened. A lot of the men that I asked in person said Asami from Takashi Miike's audition, which in and of itself was surprising to me because I wasn't aware of just how uh, like popular that horror movie really is. I also don't get out much. And on the flip side of that, the most common answer that I got from women that I asked was Esther from Orphan. All right, first of all, I think those are both excellent answers. Takashi Miike's audition is the story of a widower who stages an audition in order to find himself a new wife. And he meets Asami, a young, sweet, sort of shy, adorable woman that he becomes immediately enchanted by. And uh, he very quickly learns that she is not at all what she seems. And with Esther from Orphan, so Orphan tells the story of a young couple who have lost their third child. They decide to turn their grief into something constructive, something positive. And so they adopt a, a nine-year-old Russian girl who is just, oh, she's so cute. She's got little, little pigtails, little ribbons in them. And um, she's a very talented artist. She's very polite and a little, you know, odd, but but sweet and lovable. She's exactly the kind of daughter that I would have liked to have had. You know what I mean? She's a very, very cool little girl who moves into their home and turns out to be not at all what she seems. Maybe this is also a testament to the American Midwest. Maybe this is just, you know, these are just horror movies that are popular in Nebraska. I don't know. I just thought it was kind of neat. I didn't do a whole lot of preparation for this episode. Um, as I mentioned last week, I have been trying to shift away from some of the more heavily scripted episodes. So I'm just kind of trying to test out like talking, see how that goes. I don't really know how well it's going so far, but hopefully it will prove to be going well. Um, but as a result of that, 
I really just thought that it would be best if I start by reading some of the answers that you guys gave me online and kind of going from there. This is a topic that I could obviously discuss for days, uh, and I, I can't actually do that. So I will probably only be covering a small portion of the answers that were given and also just, you know, some of my favorite female killers. Uh, so I'm probably just going to call this episode part one, as I'm sure there will be a part two. <laughs> So in asking for people's scariest or most memorable female villain or killer in a horror film, I got a lot of really great answers. And I wanted to just kind of read some of those because a lot of them are just, they're so good. My friend Anthony, he said Annie Wilkes. Now I'm not going to talk about Annie Wilkes at length because I have already done an entire episode uh, called Misery Loves Company featuring my friend Bruce Barnett where we go through the entire film from start to finish. And we talk so much about Annie Wilkes in that episode. I feel like I really wouldn't be able to talk about her much without just rehashing everything I've already said. She is my favorite villain in the history of horror films and one of my favorite villains in the history of film in general. So yeah, I definitely agree with Anthony there. She is terrifying and definitely unforgettable. My friend Tina, <laughs> her answer to this question was just Angelica Houston. No role, just just Angelica. So I was like, just in general? Uh, because I agree. And, and she said yes, uh, but most specifically, The Witches. Now, The Witches is, of course, a children's horror film. Um, it's like a family horror film. But I, I think it counts when she strips off that, that disguise as she's transforming into that grotesque monster of a witch, which also kind of happens in Orphan. Really disturbing scene. I'll never forget it. But yeah, same with Angelica Houston in The Witches. She, she was really scary. Children the world over were terrified of her. Alan uh, offered two. One was Esther from Orphan, and the other was um, Nancy from The Craft, which I was born in 83. I was a teenager in the mid-90s, a goth teenage girl in the mid-90s, mind you. So I think it goes without saying that I loved The Craft when I was a kid. The older I've gotten, I have started to lose just a little bit of my love for it. Um, but I still think that Farouza's performance in that film is one of the most believable, crazy female villains. You know what I mean? Like, just batshit crazy. Because that's the thing. Um, I, so for Halloween, I'm going to jump topics for a sec, but I promise it relates. Um, for Halloween, my mother and I exchanged gifts, kind of the way people do on Christmas. And she sent me this fantastic compendium of horror films um, this year. I love this book. Thank you so much, Mom. It was edited by Paul Duncan and Jürgen Mueller. It's just a big-ass book of the best scary movies of all time. It was just perfect timing because I got it it came in the mail like just a couple of days after you guys voted. And there's a whole section in here in the book called The Monstrous Feminine. Also, the picture, uh, what do they call it? The centerfold uh, that's, that begins that chapter is Angelica Houston in The Witches. So definitely counting this one for sure, if I didn't make that clear enough. But I enjoy this collection in general. This book is great, but I really like this chapter. Uh, one of the things that I enjoyed most about it was that they talk about the three primary types of stories that feature female villains or killers, or just the, the three types of female villains that tend to exist within horror stories. Um, and according to Tashin, those three categories, or those three types of women, are the woman scorned, the witch, and the pure evil bitch, is what they call it. And I agree. I am going to add what for me is a fourth character type, to that, which is the accomplice or the enabler, which 
you know, one of the good things about these categories is that I think you can definitely find a little bit of a couple of them in most characters. Considering those three character types, I would definitely put Nancy from The Craft uh, into what they consider to be like the the least present character type within horror, which is the pure evil bitch, or what I like to call the batshit crazy. Um, I would definitely put Nancy into that category primarily. There is a little bit of the woman scorned in her. There's a little bit of the witch in her. But predominantly, she's just batshit crazy. And so she falls into that category, I feel. And that particular character type when it comes to female characters for whatever reason i have noticed that that is the most difficult one to do well and it is the one that seems to be the most difficult for audiences to accept and i think part of that comes from the reality which is that predominantly men just they kill people more frequently than women in life you know i think most female villains in horror films are motivated by childhood trauma, which can also be said of a lot of male villains in horror films. We do like to to provide backstory and motivation for most of our killers. I think it seems to happen like 99 out of every 100 female killers, they all have their motivations explained, whereas it's probably closer to like 50-50 with male characters. Um, I, those numbers are in no way actually researched. That's <laughs> just my my estimate. So I think it's so much easier for us to accept that men will just kill indiscriminately for reasons unknown in horror films. It's easier for us to accept and believe that. One of the reasons why I really enjoy Feruza Balk's performance in The Craft, I think it was a combination of how Nancy was written and what Feruza brought to the character. I feel like she was one of the single most believable batshit crazy female villains I have ever seen. I also think going back for a second to those first films that I was talking about, considering these character types, I personally feel that both Asami and Esther belong in the woman scorned category, as well as the batshit crazy category. I think there's a little bit of both in each of them. So yeah, uh, Brett said Dolores Bickerman. I'm sorry, Mrs. Dolores Bickerman, who I love and is actually the reason that I created the fourth character type, which is the accomplice or the enabler, because I believe that Dolores Bickerman, played by Betty White, she's featured in the film Lake Placid, which is one of my favorite creature features from the 90s. I absolutely love it. It's kind of a horror. It kind of toes the line between horror and comedy. And Betty White plays Dolores Bickerman, who lives on this lake where these giant man-eating crocodiles are running amok and killing everyone. And she knows about the crocodiles. In fact, one of the crocodiles killed her husband. And she covered it up. She buried him under the bulkhead, never told anybody about it. And she has, you know, like no respect for authority. She doesn't want to do anything to help anybody actually do anything about these crocodiles because she cares more about the crocodiles than the people that are dying. At the end of the film, when uh, they manage to take down the, these crocodiles, well, what they think is one turns out to be two. And at the end of the film, there's Mrs. Bickerman with her little toes dangling in the water and they're being nipped at by tiny baby crocodiles, which she is feeding. So she isn't killing anyone, but she is absolutely taking care of those babies and enabling them. She is allowing them to grow into the man-eating crocodiles that will kill eventually. So I'm a fan of that character type as well in terms of villainy in horror. Uh, I think I think you could also 
Into that category, you could also place Julia from Hellraiser. Although my friend Jordy did remind me yesterday, she does do a lot of what she does in service of herself. There's a, a lot of the accomplice or enabler in her, but there is a little bit of the crazy in her as well. More accurately, I think pure evil bitch, as described in the Tashin Compendium. I think another good example of an accomplice or an enabler would be uh, Tiffany from the Child's Play series. And also um, another friend of mine, Danny, said Dollface and Pinup Girl from The Strangers. He also also went on to say a lot of people don't like the strangers because there is no x is happening because of y but the randomness and lack of motivation makes everything more real feeling and creepy to me it's also refreshing that as far as we know they haven't become killers because they've lost their sense of a traditional female role mother or wife or were traumatized into it they have agency which makes their actions all that much worse i would definitely say that dollface and pinup girl fall into both of those categories as well both um an accomplice or an enabler which i think you know when you're killing as part of a team or a group uh but also the crazy because you're right they do have agency they are free agents they are acting as far as we know of their own free will and i love that he pointed out you know specifically for these particular characters that there is no like loss of a traditional female role you know because that's also a very common motivating factor for female villains we strip them of something that makes them typically female you have like nola from the brood i think that's an excellent example of a female villain who has been stripped of her motherhood um you have alex forrest where she's running out of time to both get married and have a child Honestly, depending on your interpretation of uh, Antichrist, you have Charlotte Gainsbourg's character in Antichrist, who is, in essence, stripped of her maternal instincts, you know, the maternal factor, the thing that makes her a good mother, among, among many other things. That is a film that has just been analyzed to death. I have seen so many different interpretations of it. I have no idea how I actually interpret it anymore. It's just been, I've read so many different interpretations. But she is someone, I feel that her character is definitely someone who has been stripped of the things that make her feel like a mother. And then you also have God, you have Pamela Voorhees from Friday the 13th, Debbie Salt from Scream 2, both of which lost their children. Let's see. AJ also said the girl from Audition, as did Breck. A lot of people um, all over the internet, wherever I was, people were saying Asami from Audition. Uh, Andrea said Pam Greer in Something Wicked This Way Comes as the Dust Witch, which I have not seen. I'm going to have to look that up. I do love Pam Greer. Uh, Dimitri also said Audition. Uh, my friend Craig, and I'm so glad that he answered this question because I knew he was going to say something that I was going to be so pissed that I hadn't thought of. Um, and he did. He said Beatrice in Inside, which if you have not seen Inside, it's a French film from 2007. I cannot recommend this movie enough. If I remember correctly, I don't think that we ever actually get a clear answer as to why Beatrice wants this woman Sarah's baby. <laughs> Um, but she wants her baby. She wants it bad. And the thing is, is that Sarah's baby is still inside of her. I didn't actually see that film for the first time until I think last year. And uh, God, it was just, oh, it was good. Kim says, uh, not really super scary, but the concept of I am mother was pretty eerie. Uh, imagine living in that world. You're just a science project for a hive mind robot. Yikes. Which... I have not seen, I hadn't even heard of I Am Mother. Um, I'm hoping that it's still on Netflix. I looked it up and uh, it was on Netflix in June. So I'm hoping it's still on there because I would love to watch it. It's, yeah, it's apparently about a, a, a girl being raised by an android whose name is simply Mother. I 
I'm interested for sure. My friend Bruce from Misery Loves Company said the alien queen. I guess you would call the alien queen a woman scorned. I know there were a few people that I asked, you know, offline outside of the internet that said Carrie. For me, I thought Margaret White was actually much more sinister, much more villainous than Carrie. Her mother is just the fucking root of like all of her problems for the most part, you know, and she she was pretty terrifying. And Carrie too, by the end, of course, was, was very scary, but still, I never stopped sympathizing with her. And this leads me to what I feel is certainly one of the most nuanced subcategories of female killers in horror films. And it's it's not something I'm actually going to talk about in an in-depth way today because I feel that this particular subcategory deserves and requires a lot more time and attention than what I can give tonight. Um, so I definitely would like to revisit this in the future, but that subtype of female killer is the Avenger or the Revenger. A few characters that I feel fall into that character type were also given as answers to this question. And most of the time, those women, they walk a very fine line between villain and badass. So kind of going back to what I was talking about at the very beginning about that article from Bustle, you know, that was sort of exalting female villains like Rose Armitage and kind of framing them as empowering characters for women, which I, I just think is just ridiculous. But taking that concept and applying it to characters like Haley from Hard Candy and Jennifer from I Spit on Your Grave, it opens up a completely new argument that I personally make with myself on a regular basis. Are these women villains or are they, are they superheroes? Revenge killings are very popular in horror films. Characters like Pamela Voorhees and Debbie Salt, I think, are similar characters, avenging the harm that has been done to them. You know, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's just, there's so many, so many female characters where the line between heroism and villainy, it's thin. I hope you'll forgive me for kind of skirting over this character type today. I promise I will come back to it. I did want to talk a little bit about what for me has always been one of my personal favorite character types um, when it comes to female killers. And that character type is the evil twin. I am a huge fan of that. And I feel like it's been done very well with women, with female characters. So I want to talk briefly about three films that feature that that evil twin character type. They're all very different movies. And one of them I'm not even sure I should actually count here, but I'm going to. And so I, I wanted to kind of add like a secondary spoiler warning because um, while I know that I've already spoiled quite a bit, these three films in particular, each of them has like an evil twin reveal that are pr pretty big deals. Major spoilers ahead. So for me, three of my favorite female villains are... Terry Fairchild from The Initiation from 1984. I love The Initiation. I think it's a great film. It's about a um, sorority pledge named Kelly Fairchild who witnessed the tragic death of her father when she was young, but she doesn't really remember it. And in fact, she was raised by the man who was having an affair with her mother 
which actually led to the incident that caused her father's death, and she believes that that man is her father. There is this big elaborate thing that the sorority that she's pledging to, or pledging for, I don't understand sorority terms, the whole sorority is going to break into the man who she believes is her father's department store. It's hell night or something. I don't know. Was not in a sorority in college. So she and the other pledges break into the department store, and once they're in this store, people start dying. And we learn that the person responsible for the deaths of everyone at the department store is actually Terry Fairchild, Kelly Fairchild's twin, who's been institutionalized since their father was killed. Both Terry and Kelly are played by Daphne Zuniga, who got her start in a small role in the dorm that dripped blood, but most people probably know her best as Princess Vespa from Spaceballs. Um, and she she does such a wonderful job with both of these characters. And I think that is what I love about the evil twin scenario. If you look at it literally, it gives uh, uh, any performer an opportunity to really play both sides. For example, Daphne Zuniga got to play both, you know, the the sweet, kind, compassionate, young academic, and then the crazy town banana pants sister who has been living traumatized in an institution forever. And she gets to play both of those roles in one performance. And that's great for any actor. And it's really wonderful anytime that we get to see um, an actor play multiple roles. I think it's always really fascinating. It's fun. Also, you know, apart from the literal, the evil twin scenario can act as a really interesting metaphor for the darkness within, which I have talked about in the past is one of my favorite elements to any good horror story is, you know, that that mirror that turns inward, that reflection of ourselves that we see, those those darker parts of us that we are terrified of. And I think the evil twin is a really great way to sort of explore and illustrate that, that internal darkness. And I really love how it's done in the initiation. I also, even more so, I would say, love how it's done in Sisters. Um, now, Sisters is a little different. It was written and directed by Brian De Palma, released in the early 70s, and it stars Margot Kidder. There's so much that happens in this story. God, it's a very powerful and moving story. It definitely has some terrifying elements, and Margot Kidder gives just a bang-up performance as both Danielle and uh, Dominique. Although, in this particular story, Dominique and Danielle aren't twins anymore. They're the same person. They were conjoined twins that were separated. And when Dominique died, Danielle essentially became Dominique. And then the third film that I really love that, like I said, I don't know if I should even count it because... I just don't, I don't know if I should, but I, I love it so much. And it has, it presents its audience with a female killer. That is April Fool's Day from 1986. Now, much like Misery, April Fool's Day is just one of my favorite horror films. And Deborah Foreman, who plays Muffy and Buffy St. John in the film, is it's one of my favorite female villainous performances. The thing is, and the reason why I wasn't sure if I should count it, and I'm just, I know that I've given two spoiler warnings so far, but like the twist ending of April Fool's Day is one of my favorite endings to a horror film. The twist ending is, ugh, I hate myself. It's all a joke. Nobody actually dies. On the face of it, it is a classic slasher film. That's what it is. You have a group of kids that go out to um, a remote lake house to celebrate and hang out with their friend Muffy. And uh, once they're there, things get a little 
weird. And Muffy starts to change and act a little differently. You know, she's a little manic. And it turns out that Muffy has a twin sister, an evil twin, named Buffy. And Buffy seems to be killing everybody all over the lake house. But it's revealed at the end that it's actually, it was all a big ploy. It was all a big gag. It was a part of a test run for an interactive murder mystery bed and breakfast that Muffy wants to create. She wants to convert the lake house into that. And she needed some test subjects to help convince, uh, I think, her father or her uncle to fund the projects. And I I know that this is like cheating, including it on this list. But for the majority of the film, you absolutely do believe that Muffy or Buffy is the killer. And I thought Deborah Foreman did such a great job with it. She also, I thought, played crazy pretty friggin' well. Like, if Buffy were a real character, she would definitely have fallen into the just batshit crazy category. Um, as far as Margot Kidder's character in Sisters, uh, I think, yeah, just crazy. I think that's the category that she would fall into the most. Whereas in The Initiation, I think that Terry Fairchild falls more under the woman scorned category. Woman scorned and driven crazy. So, yeah. And those were all three instances of uh, performances from, from women playing these just fantastically crazy female villains and they all played them so believably. Which brings me to the last one that I'm going to talk about, which is actually um, one of the only female killer performances that I remember not enjoying, which was the character of Brenda, portrayed by Rebecca Gayhart in Urban Legend. Nobody said this. This was nobody's answer. And I'm really glad of that. But I wanted to mention it because I, I think it kind of relates back to that what's easier or more difficult for us to accept as audience members. I think Jill from Scream 4 had a little bit of this too. Whereas like Debbie Salt, you know, oh, but Debbie Salt was perfect. I love Laurie Metcalf. I love her performance of Debbie Salt in Scream 2. And I was so shocked when they revealed her initially because I had completely forgotten about Billy's mother. But Jill in Scream 4 and Rebecca Gayhart, most especially in Urban Legend, um, which I love both of those films, but I don't buy either of them as killers. Both of them, one was the woman scorned. The other one was just the bat crap crazy, very covetous character, you know, who wanted Sydney's life. She wanted to be famous. She didn't want to work for it. I just didn't buy either of their performances. And I think that it was partly them, but it was also partly the scripts. It's hard to write crazy women well. I don't know why, but it seems to be the reality. So yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Brenda from Urban Legend, but uh, but she was memorable nonetheless, you know? It's ironic because I say, you know, I asked like not just who the scariest one was, but who the most memorable one was. And to this day, I still think about Brenda from Urban Legend. So she was memorable. She just wasn't, she wasn't scary. So those are just some of the female villains and killers that I myself and and my friends you out there have enjoyed and been terrified by or you know that you that you remember well if anybody out there has any more recommendations I know there are a lot more out there so I would love it if you wanted to join in on the conversation. You can join the Discord by going to my Patreon page and scrolling down to around the middle of the About Me section. There's an open invitation to my Discord just below the link to this podcast on Anchor. So please come and join us. Talk to us. Um, if you are already a member of the Discord and you didn't get a chance to answer this particular question, I will be posting it in the confessional channel tonight. So be on the lookout for that. I would just love to hear everybody's thoughts. Let's keep this conversation going. And speaking of 
keeping the conversation going on a personal final note on this topic. I was reading an article just this afternoon from Yes Magazine, and it's from a couple of years ago. It's from 2017, but I had never read this article before. And I was really happy to read it. And I just wanted to share it with you guys. The article is entitled, How Horror Films Are Bringing More Gender Equality to Hollywood. And the subtitle, which was what actually really grabbed me, was a new study finds that horror is the only film genre where women appear and speak as often as men. Now, this is a f- like a factoid that I... 100% believe. Like, I, even if I hadn't read the rest of the article and been presented with, you know, the science, the math behind this, I would have no trouble believing it. And it it was, I don't know, it warmed my heart. I know that I included this topic on that poll on Patreon, but I was really nervous when you guys chose it because I wanted to talk about this stuff, but I was a little afraid. I This was a sensitive topic for a long time. And I know that women's equality and fair representation in film and entertainment media is still, I mean, it's still a very important issue and I don't want to stop talking about it. But I I have for a long time wanted people to ease off of horror films, you know, when they're looking for somebody to blame for the victimization of women. And um, I had noticed that the dynamic had been shifting. And it was just really nice to find this particular article. And there are others like it that I also found. But this particular article that talks about um, the Gina Davis Institute on gender and media and talking about a study that that organization conducted that, that essentially empirically proved that at least in 2017, Women appeared and spoke more in horror films than any other genre. Whether you are a batshit crazy woman, a woman scorned with a fury that hell hath not, uh, a creepy witch or a, a creepy little ghost girl, and I'm sorry that I didn't really talk about either of those tonight, but I am not as well versed in, you know, creepy ghost girls or witches as some of my other horror fan friends and I hope to someday revisit this topic with guests like Kat and Susie um, who are much more well-versed in those particular subcategories. So I'd like to explore it with them sometime. I know I focused primarily more on like slasher films, but that's that's because that's my favorite subgenre of horror film. And so those are the movies that I've personally seen the most. And I wanted to kind of explore some of your guys' favorites um, because I want this to be a group effort. I want this to be a group experience. Um, and so this was also part of that. So I hope that you enjoyed this um, slightly messy, but for me, it was actually really fun uh, examination of some of the horror genres, female villains and killers. If I had to choose one favorite female villain, it would definitely still be Annie Wilkes. She scares me to my very core. A close second would be Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction. And I realize that Fatal Attraction is very rarely classified as a horror film. But I, I talked about this a little bit um, on Halloween. Alex Forrest scares the hell out of me. And I will never see Fatal Attraction as anything less than a spectacular horror film. Man, I'm all pumped. Now I want to go watch some, I want to watch The Descent. I want to watch uh, Lair of the White Worm. I want to watch some of the movies that, that you guys brought to me and, and reminded me of. And I want to get scared by some ladies tonight. Before I sign off tonight, I do have a little bit of news that I want to cover. First of all, um, this week, definitely the highlight of my week in terms of movie trailers is Scott Cooper's Antlers. I hadn't heard about this film until just a few days ago when Alan showed me the trailer. It's got this sort of like American gothic feel to it. Please go look this trailer up right now because I think it looks really exciting. Also, 
I wanted to talk for just a second about the entire internet losing its mind over this rumor that has started about a fifth Scream movie from Spyglass Media Group. I'm sure that it is going to happen. I'm sure that it's not just a rumor. Everybody's going nuts. I've been reading some really funny fan theories on Reddit and Twitter, which I, I definitely recommend checking some of those out. Just like go to Twitter and, and look up Scream 5 and see some of these fan theories that people have come up with. There's some really good ones too and some pretty bad ones. Like I, I read one very detailed fan theory on Reddit that the fifth Scream will feature Sidney Prescott as the killer, which I sincerely hope never happens. I would be so sad if Sidney became the killer in the fifth Scream. Um, it's hard for me to get too excited this early on when it's really just like, it's in early development. That's all we know. We don't know anything about who's writing it, who's directing it, who's going to be in it. We don't know anything about the story, just that there's probably going to be a fifth scream. It's a little hard for me to get super invested. I'm having like Sandman adaptation flashbacks. With Scream 5, it's a little different because I really want to see a live action adaptation of Sandman, I don't know that I really want a fifth Scream film. I am a very big fan of the Scream movies that we have now. I love all four Scream films. I really enjoyed the first season of the Scream TV show as well. And I'm good, you know? I'm just, I'm good with what we have. I don't think we need any more Screams. Maybe in a year or so, there will be a trailer for this film that comes out that just totally blows my mind. And I'll change my mind. But for now, I'm just enjoying all of the different fan theories on on Reddit. <laughs> I would like to ask, in addition to questions that I've asked already tonight, if there is going to be a Scream 5, what would you like to see happen in that movie? Would you want to see anything happen? Or are you like me and you're just sort of like, I'm good. I like what we have. As far as podcast news goes, I'm sure you guys noticed I did change the name of the podcast. I'm no longer calling it Confessions of a Final Girl. It is now Final Girl Friday. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Final Girl Friday makes a lot more sense to me. I also feel that it is easier to spell. And uh, weirdly enough, it is less common than Confessions of a Final Girl online. So um, like that, those words together. I also record on Fridays. And it's kind of a reference to both Friday the 13th and His Girl Friday. It just clicked in my head when I thought of it. And I figure now's the best time, if ever, to change the name. And I also, I, I think most of you who are listening to this have probably seen it on the Discord. But I did post the new podcast art that I commissioned from a brilliant artist named Stefan. I am so glad. I love this artwork. He did this very old school, like, PC adventure game style art and I just love it so I've, I've plastered it everywhere and I'm going to be ordering a couple of stickers and magnets with that art on it so um, when we do the giveaway at the end of this month I'll want to include at least one of those in that big huge thanks speaking of that artwork and the giveaway to my patrons Alan, Eli, Suzy Q and Xerxes I am ever grateful to you guys and I hope that this episode sounded good because I've got the XLR cable that's allowing me to use the Audio-Technica microphone. I've got the new mic stand and the windscreen, and this is going to be my permanent setup for a little while. I think it sounds a lot better than it has in the past, and it would not have happened if it weren't for you guys. So thank you so much. You also are responsible for the commission of the podcast art, so I definitely hope you like it. So yay, really excited about the future of this podcast. I don't know why I'm using this voice. It's five o'clock in the morning. I'm very, very tired. So I am gonna go. <laughs> I hope that you all have a wonderful week. 
And I will be back next week talking about something. I have no idea what yet. A little bit of slaughter high. I've gotten some of your feedback on the movie so far, and it has been very entertaining. I'm really excited to hear what the rest of you think of it. I have a lot of responses to your comments. Once again, I hope your week goes very well. I hope you have pleasant nightmares this evening. And until next time, creep it real. (laughs) 